Okay, good morning. How's everyone? Good, here. That's a good sign. We're thankful, and I'm here, and I'm doing well. Uh, and I'm thankful for that as well. We uh, began looking la- uh, two weeks ago in First Corinthians chapter 11, and I appreciate Dan filling in last week while Denise and I were on vacation. And I heard it was very good. I heard lots of good feedback. So that was good. You want my job? Want <laughs> trade? Shucks. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to serve here. First um, Corinthians chapter 11, very controversial, very hotly debated. Passage I would love to just skip. You know? <laughs> Instead of skipping it, I ended up preaching on it two weeks, two weeks straight. That's, I don't know, I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess. Um, you know, oftentimes as Christians, we are really in a position of being countercultural. Uh, we oftentimes must stand against the standards or norms of culture. Um, you know, our uh, modern culture is very materialistic and greedy, and as Christians, we opt for a lifestyle that should be simple, uh, generous, not greedy, not hoarding, but giving. Uh, uh, our Western culture in general is becoming more and more immoral and embracing, uh, quote, sexual freedom, uh, which is basically just a nice way of saying, you know, trashy immorality. Uh, we as Christians stand against that. Uh, we believe in moral purity. We believe in uh, abstaining from sex outside of marriage or before marriage. Um, now, some of these countercultural focuses are obvious immorality. Uh, use of drugs, uh, greed. Those are easy, that we, we are counter against those things in our culture. But other areas are a lot more complicated and subtle and, and often not quite so clear how we should respond. And one of those is this whole uh, cultural phenomena of feminism. And uh, 1 Corinthians 11 really uh, kind of brushes up against modern-day feminism. Uh, feminism is a force that's been growing, especially in West, the Western world, for about 200 years. And uh, you, you know, if you were to be around 200 years ago, women did not vote, did not run for public office, had no positions of power or influence in society. And over the last 200 years, we've seen a lot of changes in that, uh, to the point that today, uh, feminism is a very clear and loud voice in Western cu- culture and society, and really around the world, it's becoming a growing, powerful voice. Um, it's proclaiming uh, values and ideas about the roles of men and women. It's defining how men and women should operate in society. Uh, it has certainly given women many more opportunities to serve in political office. It has changed roles of men and women in the home. Uh, the views of how women uh, get accepted into colleges and get accepted into uh, job positions. Um, and the question for us as Christians is, how do we respond to this? Is, is it biblical? Is it good? Um, you know, there are some Christians who believe all feminists should be locked up in some dungeon somewhere. Others kind of gladly embrace this as, you know, this is what the church should be. The church should be embracing these ideas. Um, You know, where does the Apostle Paul, was the Apostle Paul a feminist? Hmm, interesting question. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Um, What is feminism? Well, here's one definition. There's a lot. And actually, as I studied this, 
even feminists don't agree on what they are or what they believe or what they think. But here's kind of a general definition uh, of uh, what's labeled radical feminism. It sees the capitalist sexist hierarchy as the, def as the defining feature of women's oppression. You know, so this is structure, this hierarchy in society where men are in charge and women are under that as the uh, defining feature of women's oppression. Radical feminists believe that women can free themselves only when they have done away with what they consider an inherently oppressive and dominating system. In other words, do away with men. Pretty much is what it boils down to. Radical feminists feel that the male-based authority and power structure are responsible for oppression and inequality and that as long as this system and its values are in place, society will not be able to reform in any way. Uh, that's pasted from Wikipedia. Um, in other words, you know, men are the root of all evil. The Bible says it's money. It's really not money, it's men. And men in charge, men in power, men in control is the root of all the problems in the world. If you just eliminate men from leadership, the world will be a different place and all the problems of the world especially in terms of women's oppression, will go away. Okay? That's basically in a nutshell what feminism believes. Now there's varying degrees of how they perceive that, but that's in general a common thread that's true of most, most feminists. They believe that the problem in the world is men, and the solution is to eliminate them, at least from positions of power or authority, to dismantle this hierarchy of power and authority that's dominated by men. Um, Basically, it sees salvation as the dethroning of men from power and dissolving of these, hierarch these hierarchies, these hierarchical systems where somebody's head and other people are under that headship, especially if that headship is male. So how do we as Christians and as a church respond to that? Uh, interestingly, there are many segments of the church and of Christians who have said, Amen! Hallelujah, it's about time we overthrow because these male-dominated structures have got into the church and have wrecked the church as well. And not only is it the problem of all of society, but it's really the root of all problems in the church. That if you just got rid of men and leadership, churches would overall run better. Uh, others kind of take a, an opposite extreme of that and believe that all feminists are the devil in going to hell and that uh, you know, we as churches need to defend, we as men in church need to defend our our power, and uh, work even harder to subvert women who are basically communists who are trying to overthrow the church. Um, and then there are a lot of people who are kind of somewhere in between. A lot of people who are Christians, who are in the church, uh, find themselves somewhere between those two extremes. And, and the real question remains for all of us, you know, what's biblical? Uh, is God a feminist? Uh, does God value feminist conviction? Do we as the, are there things about feminism that we as a church should embrace? Or is it all evil, all just a plot of Satan to ruin the world? Uh, what's the truth? Well, Paul in, in, in Scripture in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 11 really addresses some of these issues. And I'm going to tie in some other Scriptures and try to look at kind of a biblical response to feminism and how we as, as Bible-believing Christians should, uh, should respond and also how, it should, how, how the Bible should direct our own relationships as men and women in the home, in the church, and in society. 
uh, it's not a matter that's just all some philosophical debate that's going on outside of us. We live here, and we all are in one of these two categories, either we're male or we're female. And uh, like it or not, there are certain roles assigned to those by society, by scripture, and uh, so we need to know what do we do with this? Um, how do we live our own lives in marriages and in relationships and in work relationships? So let's uh, review this a little bit. Two weeks ago we looked at, at, at chapter 11. Let me read. Actually, before we start, let me read through this passage one more time. Paul says, I'm so glad, dear friends, that you are always keeping me in your thoughts and you are following the Christian teaching I passed on to you. But there is one thing I want you to know. A man is head over... Uh, I, I'm sorry. Christ is head over men. A, a, a husband is head, or a man is head over his wife or women, a woman. And God is head over Christ. A man dishonors Christ if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her husband or her head if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should just cut off all her hair. And since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, then she should wear a covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, For a man is God's glory, made in his own image. But a woman is the glory of man. And man was not made for a woman's benefit, but woman was made for man's benefit. So a woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign of authority because the angels are watching. But in relationships among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from man, all men since have been born from a woman, and everything comes from God. What do you think about this? Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it is disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't it obvious that long hair is a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, all I can say is that we have no other custom than this, and all the churches of God feel the same way about it. Okay, let's let's pray. (laughs) Prayer would be good at this point. Father, we just thank you for uh, your sovereign, uh, wise, uh, powerful uh, creation of this world. And Lord, we want... Uh, your word and your truth to speak to us. Father, I thank you that my opinions and my ideas mean nothing and have no value. And uh, what, what has value and meaning is your truth and your word. And we ask that your spirit would speak to us this morning. Lord, help us to be people who have a balanced perspective, but most of all, a biblical perspective on these truths. Lord, help us to learn what it means to be men and women uh, who you have raised up to serve you. And this guide us, we pray, as we think through these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, quick review. Uh, basically, Paul is arguing here that it matters how you dress. Now, of course, we don't adopt the same dress code that they did back then. I noticed that since two weeks ago, none, none of you ladies got convicted and came with a hat. Uh, and that's because it's, it's cultural. And, uh, and uh, it matters, but it matters within the meaning of a given cultural context. And uh, basically, 
we said that the two things that Paul's most concerned about here is that your dress, your dress honors God, and uh, that it's done in a way that, that honors God through gender distinctions. In other words, God created men, men, and women, women, and our dress should reflect that. And a lot of what he's talking about here is that, that in, the, in their worship, covering heads and not covering, was distinguishing men from women. And it meant something in that culture. Now today, uh, you could maybe put it this way. Uh, men, you know, when you come to, church, come to church, it's not appropriate for you to stand up and pray in public wearing a skirt. Okay? Because it's distracting, <laughs> to say the least. All right? Unless you're in Scotland and it's a kilt. But, you know, if you're in, a, you know, in Western cultures, uh, yeah, it's distracting. Okay? And it's wrong because it's dishonoring your gender distinction that, that men dress in a way that is appropriate in your culture for men, women in a way that's appropriate for women in our culture. Secondly, we honor our spouse by dressing in a way that's modest. And a lot of what was going on in Corinth is they were dressing in, in ways that would reflect that they were prostitutes, that they were worshiping in idol temples. And so he says, you need to dress in a way that honors your spouse by being modest and appropriate. And so, uh, you know, if you're married and you're not putting yourself out there on the market, so to speak, don't dress like it. And if you are putting yourself on the market... Do it appropriately, okay? Uh, not like a prostitute. You're not on that market, okay? It's on a different market. You're looking for a husband, not just a, you know, a customer. So don't dress like that. That's what he's saying, okay? Um, some people have said, well, you know, this passage is about culture. It's about hair coverings and head coverings. Therefore, it's all just cultural, and we can kind of throw out all of what Paul is saying here because it's just cultural anyway. But I shared last week that while, while the specific issue Paul is addressing is cultural, he builds his argument on something that's beyond culture. And he starts with this premise that Christ is the head of, of men, that a man is the head of a woman, and that God is the head of Christ. And that is the foundation he builds this argument on. And that's not cultural. That goes all the way back to creation and before uh, and he said, he goes, and Paul takes the argument back to creation. He says, in creation, God created man first, and he created man to reflect his glory. And a part of what men are to be are image bearers of God who in their manhood and in their leadership and their exercise of headship reflect God's headship over the universe. And likewise, women were created by God as a helpmate, a partner for men, not as a slave, not as a foot servant, but as a partner. And she reflects God's glory by being the glory of her husband. Okay, by somehow uh, reflecting uh, through her beauty and through her character that she is the pride and delight and joy of her husband, and that is her glory. Uh, we talked last week that this is more than a human institution. The God didn't just think in heaven, you know, one day I'm going to create men, I'm going to create women. I want, to, I want to create this really chauvinistic society where men are like kings and lords and women are slaves. Let's see, how can I do that? Okay, that's not what God did. The order that he put in the, in, in the, in the home with male headship and women under that headship reflects his own character in the Trinity. And it's really important to notice that that God, in this hierarchy, put God the Father as head over Christ, and that Jesus lived and walked both in eternity as well as in this earth as one who was under the headship of God the Father. And so, when we live, as all of us do, under headship, 
and as we exercise leadership or headship over others, we do so reflecting really in that the Trinity. It's not just a human institution. It's not just something God put on earth. It is an eternal divine principle that reflects the very nature and character of the Godhead. Uh, So the conclusion, uh, and hopefully you got this two weeks ago, what I was trying, the point I was trying to make is simply this. It's God's design. That God designed a world where there is hierarchy. And specifically where there is what we call patriarchy. And patriarchy simply means a male-based authority structure. Okay, and in scripture that male-based authority structure is is specifically uh, in the home. Uh, As you get farther and farther outside the home, the scripture scripture is much less clear and specific on how far that goes. But certainly it is a it is a, a God-designed part of the way he made the world. Okay, that, that, uh, that this headship that is primarily male uh, is God's design for the universe. That he created it, and in its godly operation, it's a reflection of, of God himself and his, his, his attributes in the Trinity. Um, so the headship of men, specifically in, in a Christian home, and I believe also in, in the church, is not the root of all evil, okay, as some would say, nor is it an outdated part of culture that needs revising. Okay, that's a big argument, oftentimes in churches, is that, well, in the ancient world it was male-dominated, and all of this is just a concession to culture. But now we're smarter, we're more educated, we're brighter, and we've kind of evolved past that male-domination stuff, and so we need to change the church and make it reflect you know, our new, the new us. Okay, well, I believe Paul would argue uh, that it goes back before creation and it's rooted in the very nature of God himself. Now, uh, why does that make people so angry? Okay, when I say that, when I say that God has designed a patriarchy and it's his order for the universe, uh, you know, if I was in the presence of a lot of feminists, I would, they, would, they would kill me, okay? I'd have to be able to run very fast because it would make them so angry because it strikes at the very core of everything that they hold to and believe. And in fact, even for many Christians, it makes them angry to hear that kind of talk. And uh, when, when, when preachers put out those kind of statements, you better be, you better be ready to duck, Okay, because there will be people who will become very angry at that. And in fact, even if you are not a feminist, even if you would hold to those views, in our society, in our world, I found that most of us, when we say, make statements like that, that the men should be head of the home and women should submit, that it's always made with a statement of apology. You know? In fact, as I read and studied many commentaries preparing for these messages, virtually every single commentator apologized for this truth if they held to it, or, uh, you know, argued against it. And it's like, you know, we're sorry that God was kind of off on this. You know, we're sorry that God didn't understand modern civilization, didn't understand how advanced and sophisticated we would be in the 21st century, and we apologize that God is archaic in his thinking. See, that's oftentimes how this is taught, and uh, oftentimes how it's presented. And virtually all the commentators backpedal when they come to this. And I've heard, uh, you know, countless sermons on this where preachers preach it very tentatively and, you know, ready to run out the back door when they're done, which is what I'm going to do. 
Uh, and there's no back door. I'm in trouble. Well, why is it we are so apologetic? Why is it we so, um, you know, wince at this doctrine and principle? Why is it that as a church we have felt so much pressure to compromise this principle? Well, the reason is simply this, that, and, and really it comes down to this, guys, it's all our fault. Okay, men, we are to blame for this, not God. Okay, it is not God's fault that, that, that this series of events has come about. It's really the fault of men. And the reason it's the fault of men is that, as women will, as our wives will tell us, it's always our fault, right? <laughs> it's always our fault. But in this case, I must say they're right. The problem is not God's design. The problem is man's sinfulness. And in this case, specifically, I mean men. We as men are sinfulness. The problem is that we have taken God's design and we have largely shipwrecked it and abused it. God has put men in charge. He's given them power. And largely men have misused and abused that power to harm and to subvert women in ways that God never intended. Now listen to some of these statistics. Uh, in the United States alone, a country of about 300 million, 60, 000, there are 60,000 reported cases of rape annually. That's just what's reported. A lot of experts believe that, that at best only half of the cases of rape are actually reported. 60,000. That's just in one country. Around the world, at least one in every three women, 30%, have been either beaten coerced into sex or otherwise abused during their lifetime. Over 30%. 37% of women treated in emergency rooms were sent there by a current or former partner or lover. Boyfriend, husband, whatever. 37%. More, more women are sent to emergency rooms by domestic violence than by car accidents and, and heart attacks combined. Okay? Um, Here's one uh, from the UN. A UN statistic in May of 2001, a report put out, said that in the world as a whole, women comprise 51% of the population. They do 66% of the work, okay, globally. They receive 10% of the income, okay? And they own less than 1% of the property. Okay, it is no wonder that women have revolted when they have been so uh, unfairly treated and abused and mistreated. And sadly, the church has not helped much. Throughout history, men in the church have used this doctrine and this teaching of headship as a way to abuse and uh, to dominate women in ways that God never intended. And to do it in the name of God, in the name of Christianity, in the name of being biblical, they've used it as an excuse and a weapon to really torment women and to treat them uh, in ways totally contrary to what God intended and designed. And so it's no wonder that women have revolted. Uh, it's really, man, it's really a wonder. You know, they outnumber us by 1%. It's really a wonder that, you know, they haven't revolted and just wiped us all out. Uh, because the, the, the statistics are overwhelming. And the truth is, you know, we can talk about, well, I'm not a, praise God, I'm not a rapist and I'm not a woman hater. But the truth is, men, if we are honest, 
that all of us at some point in our lives, probably more than once, have misused our power, our physical strength, our, our superior position in terms of just our size and weight and sometimes meanness to intimidate and bully women in ways that have dishonored them. Oftentimes, our spouse or our children. Okay? The reality is that God has given us a power and we have not always used it well. And it's no wonder that women have cried out. And we must understand that the hard cry of the feminist movement is mostly a cry for justice. Okay, at the heart of what, what most, feminism, most feminists are about is just seeking fair and just treatment for women around the world. Okay, that's their heart cry. Now, some of them have taken the sense of injustice a bit far and you know, uh, have kind of gotten carried away. But the core of it and the core reality is that women are treated unjustly. They are not treated fairly. And, uh, and often what they are calling for is a simple cry for fair treatment and justice for women. Uh, in that sense, I believe God is a feminist. God is one who is deeply concerned about the justice and rights and protection of those who are oppressed. And around the world, when God sees women who are being oppressed and mistreated by men, God would be a feminist. He would be one who would call for the just and fair treatment. He would be one who would hate and uh, would be very displeased about the way women are dishonored because of oppression and male domination that's not biblical and that's not his design or plan. Uh, A second reason that women revolt not only because of injustice, part of what's behind it, is their longing just to receive honor and glory. The reality is that that uh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians here, he says, women are to be, and were created by God to be the glory of men. And the truth is that we as men have not done a very good job of giving women glory and honor as our partners, as those who are co-workers, as Peter says, co-workers with us in the gospel. Like Peter says, men, treat your wives in an understanding way and honor them as a weaker vessel uh, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Uh, Peter says that. Uh, part of the reason women are so ticked off is because they have been robbed of, of the glory that God wanted them to have. And it's a glory that we as men have been given the, the privilege of bestowing upon them. And when we have misused and mistreated them and really sought only our own glory, it makes women angry. And it frustrates them. And uh, I believe in that sense also God is a feminist that God wants to see women elevated to the place of honor that he intended for them in creation, that, that they would reflect his glory as, as partners with their husbands, not as slaves or those who are being beaten and abused by those, their husbands. Uh, I also believe that, that feminism is not helping in this. I really believe that uh, one, of the, one of the problems with feminism is that they also are robbing women of glory. And sadly, feminists have said, because of their, their understanding of the problem, they have said that for women to be homemakers who value family life and who stand beside their husbands, that that's foolishness and ridiculous. And sadly, they are robbing women as well of the glory that God designs for them. And they're trying to seek glory in ways that is not fitting or appropriate or that works. And so... Um, 
you know, I, I don't think their, their solutions are working always really so well. Um, but at the heart of it, we must recognize legitimate, real needs that we as men have a responsibility to be looking at, out for with women in our own life and women in general. Um, so what do we do with this? What do we do with feminism? Well, I really believe that feminism is a worthy cause, but they have the wrong solutions. Okay, their solutions are not biblical and they don't work. The cause is biblical and just. Their solution to the problem doesn't work. Um, you know, if, if God is a feminist, are we to be feminists? Well, there's a sense in which I am very much a feminist. I believe very much in advocating for the rights and protection of women. I live in a house full of girls. You know, for me, it's become a matter of self-survival. You know? And uh, not that I do this perfectly or well, uh, but over my years, especially my years counseling, uh, I listened to the stories of dove, scores and scores of women who were abused and hurt and abandoned and neglected at the hands of men. And uh, you know, it makes you angry. When you hear their personal stories, it makes you very angry. Oftentimes in Christian homes, oftentimes in pastors' homes, uh, women are, are the victims of terrible things. And uh, so there's a sense in which, yeah, um, I believe we need to be advocating and protecting and working and fighting for the rights and protection of women. Um, however, I don't think the feminists have a, the right solution. Uh, what is their solution? Well, ultimately this. And, and they all have different philosophies, and I don't want to cast feminists into one category. There, there's, there's more feminists than there are kinds of Christians, if that could be imagined. That's true. But in general, this is how they see the problem being solved. First of all, most of them fight and argue for the equality of women. And they believe that this hierarchy creates an inequality, that women are not, cannot be equal in a hierarchical system that if men are in charge and women are under them, they are inherently unequal. Uh, I would argue with that in, in the Trinity. Jesus is under the headship of the Father. But are the Father and the Son equal? Absolutely. In nature and character and essence and everything, they are equal. Hierarchy does not spell out inequality. Uh, and so I think they're wrong in that point. Secondly, their solution to, to creating equality is this. Uh, they believe that the only way to bring about equality is to end male domination. I read a quote earlier. Uh, they, they believe that these hierarchies, these patriarchal systems, must be destroyed. So that means in, a home, in the home, the man is not to be the head. Okay, there's supposed to be kind of some joint partnership or I don't know what they propose, but for man to be the head of the home is is an inequality, they would argue. For to have pastoral leadership in a church that's male or eldership that's male, they would say that's an inequality. And if women can't have those roles in offices, they're being treated unequally. Uh, in government, and society, in politics, and in jobs, they argue that if men are in charge, that it puts an, uh, an unfairness upon women and that's an inequality. And the only way that can be solved is to abolish men in charge. Okay. And that's at the heart of their solution. Uh, once men are no longer in power or in charge, everything will be better and women will never have problems again. Okay, that's kind of the argument. 
Uh, well, I believe that doesn't work. Um, but it's interesting that there are threads of feminism deeply woven into all of the, the, the fabric of Western culture and thought. And so much so that this thinking has become very powerful and pervasive to the point that all of us are affected by it. Uh, all of us live with this notion that, that this somehow must be true. That uh, one of the problems in the world is that men are in charge. It's portrayed on television, it's shown in movies, it's in books. It is everywhere. And that's why we feel like apologizing when we say, no men should be in charge. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but that's what we believe. Why do we feel so apologetic? Because that, that current is so strong in culture. And that voice is so loud um, that, that, that it's ridiculous to believe that men are somehow better leaders. And that, that, that the world could operate if men are in charge. Um, the, and the problem is it's a terrible solution. And, and here's some basic reasons why. First of all, they don't understand the root of the problem. The problem is not men. I mean, that is one of the problems. Men are a problem. I'll, I'll give you that. But it's not men specifically. It's men who are sinful. The root of the problem in the world, the reason there's oppression and abuse and harm, is because of sin, not because of maleness, not because of God's design or order. It's because of sin. And if we took all male leadership away around the world and replaced it with female leadership, the same problems would exist because the problem is sin, not male leadership. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> women are not the salvation of the world. Okay? And sadly, that's what feminism would argue for, that women can save the world, that they can rise to power, overthrow these uh, oppressive male-dominated systems, and assert themselves as women and gain equality. It's not true. Okay? Jesus is the savior of the world. Okay? Praise God, women, you, you know, you're off the hook. You don't have to save the world. Jesus has already done it. So what is God's solution to the problem? Well, God's solution to the problem is really quite simple. And Paul states it here. Uh, Paul says, Christ is the head over men. The solution to the problem is a Christ-centered hierarchy. Okay, the solution to the problem is not men being in charge. The solution to the problem is Christ being in charge. When Christ becomes head of the home and men are leaders under the headship of Christ, good things will happen. When Christ is the head of the church and men fulfill their God-ordained and called leadership roles under the headship of Christ, good things will happen. When Christ is the head of society and people, whoever they are, are called to lead under the headship of Christ, the world would become a better place. The solution is that we all must live in submission to the authority of Christ over our life. And that's true for every person. Our life works when Christ is in charge. Uh, and God's design is a hierarchy where Christ is head over everyone. And within that hierarchy where Christ is in charge, there is an order of leadership. And oftentimes, in the home, I believe in the church, that, that leadership will often or most likely be men who are godly and who are themselves under the headship of Christ. Uh, 
Christ modeled what this leadership looked like. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, there's a lot of other studies, and we could do a whole study on this. But when Christ is head, and he's in charge, and he appoints leaders, he appoints leaders who will lead like him. The problem is that most time when headship doesn't work, it's because people are exercising authority or leadership in ways contrary to how Jesus ordained it. And so when we exercise as men or as women when we're in roles of leadership, we're to exercise that leadership as Jesus exercised it. Well, what does that look like? Well, uh, it, it's, it's a leadership where we as leaders take responsibility regardless of fault. Okay, we take responsibility regardless of fault. That's what it means to be the head. To be the head means the buck stops here. You take responsibility for a, a, a situation even if you are not at fault. Notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 about Christ taking responsibility for us. It says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility that separated it. See, Jesus took responsibility for the sin that divided mankind. He solved it. He did this by ending the system of the law of, the, of commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now, all of us come to the Father to the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. See, Jesus didn't say, you know, they've sinned, they've messed it up, they've caused division in the world. It's not my problem. It's not my fault. I don't have to worry about it. Jesus said, no, I am head. I am authority. I am sovereign over this world. I will take responsibility to solve and fix the problem of sin, even though it was not my fault. And Jesus went to the cross and gave his own life to fix the problem that we caused. See, that's leadership. It's saying, I don't care who's to blame. I don't care whose fault it is. I will take responsibility to set it right. I will take responsibility to bring harmony, to bring peace, to bring restoration in a relationship, even if it's not my fault. Okay, that's Jesus' model of leadership. Jesus' model of leadership is that we are servants, not overlords. A very familiar passage in Mark, Jesus said, uh, well, the story James and John said to, to Jesus, Teacher, we want, to, we want you to do us a favor. When, when, uh, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to be in the places of honor next to you. <clears throat> We want top rank and authority in the kingdom. We want to be your vice president, an assistant, you know, head of the cabinet, whatever. And Jesus says, well, number one, you don't know what you're asking for, uh, and I do not have authority to appoint those positions. Uh, but then Jesus called together his disciples and he said, you know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people. Their leadership style is one of overlord, of domination, uh, Jesus said they flaunt their authority over those under them. But he says among you it must be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, leadership is not being an overlord. It's not being a dictator. It is being a servant. And Jesus modeled that in his own life as he served the disciples. Um, Thirdly, Jesus' model of leadership is that leadership is shepherding. It's great that uh, Rick shared from the 23rd Psalm this morning. And it is true, a shepherd is one who provides for the sheep and protects them. Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, Leadership means providing and protecting. It means looking out for those in your care and your charge that all of their needs are met physically, emotionally, spiritually, and that they are protected. That's why, you know, we don't believe we should be sending women into combat. Women want equality, but nobody wants women out there, you know, lugging machine guns and rocket launchers. You know, Men should be in the role of protectors. And uh, it is our job, a part of our leadership role, to protect. That's why God made us stronger as a general rule. Well, I've met some girls who I wouldn't want to mess with. But as a general rule, uh, men are naturally stronger so that we can be protectors. And not just physically, physically, but I believe also spiritually and emotionally. We are to be spiritual leaders in our home. We are to be providing the spiritual food in our families. Okay, that's what it means to be a leader. Um, lastly, and there's probably a lot more, but lastly, um, uh, leadership puts the needs of others first. Uh, Philippians, and this is a verse that applies to all of us, but I think especially leaders, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others and their needs above your own. Each of you, you should look not out to your own interests, but the interests of others. Your attitude should be like that of Christ, our example, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, These are models of what it means to be a leader. And I really believe in, in 1 Corinthians 11 when, when Paul says, men, you were created in God's image to bring glory, to reflect the glory of God. We do that best as men when we lead this way. When we are servant leaders who provide and protect for our families and those in our care, we are servants, we put the needs of those we, we care for above our own needs, we sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. When we do that, we reflect God's glory as that is what He has done as a Father for us. That is what He has done as His head of us. Um, so that's one half of it. Uh, guys, being both that kind of a leader. Modeling that kind of leadership. Imagine if the hierarchy and the patriarchy of the world operated with men who were governed by these principles the world would be a different place. And I'm telling you, ladies would not complain. I guarantee it. Ladies would not complain if they were treated this way. The other side of it, though, Paul says a strange thing here. He says, and women are the glory of men. That's a hard one. And, you know, feminists really, man, they balk at this. Man, no, nothing about my glory is going to have anything to do with the man. Okay? Well, what does Paul mean by that? 
but quite honestly, I don't totally know. Okay, it's, it's, it's a hard concept for me. But I do believe that, that a woman will be most fulfilled and will receive the greatest honor and fulfillment in her life when she fulfills her role as a wife and as a, a woman who lives in, in the role that God calls them to. Okay? Um, what does that look like? Well, First Peter 3 puts it this way. Peter says, Don't be concerned, ladies, about outward beauty, fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourself instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted. In other words, it was their glory. It was their shining light. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband, Abraham. Quite honestly, he was kind of a lunatic. You know, not the best husband in the world, actually. And he called him her master. Well, I love that verse. Master. Hey, my wife's never called me master. And I don't expect her to start, actually. Uh, you are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. In other words, when they make really crazy decisions, is that what that means. The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, as opposed to a cantankerous, grumbling spirit. Uh, a contentious woman is not glorious. The writer of Proverbs talks about, you know, the, it's better to live, you know, in the corner of your attic than with, your, than with a contentious woman, a dripping faucet, one who's divisive and argumentative. Okay? Okay, there is glory when a woman is a helpmate to her husband. Okay, not, not a footstool, but a helpmate. One who comes alongside and really fills in the empty blanks in her husband's life and, uh, and, and, and helps him be what God has called him to be. It's interesting, a, a famous secular fiction author, and I, when I clipped this off the internet, I didn't get the name of the author, sorry, but it was a very popular, if I knew the name, you would know it, a fiction writer, secular, not a Christian. Uh, she wrote this about her role and her fulfillment as a woman. She said, there, For me, there is no solid satisfaction in any career woman like myself. There is no home, no true freedom, no hope, no joy, no expectation for tomorrow, no contentment. I would rather cook a meal for a man and bring him his slippers and feel myself in the protection of his arms than have all the citations and awards and honors I have received worldwide, including the ribbon of Legion of Honor and all my property and my bank accounts. They mean nothing to me, and I am only one among the millions of sad women like myself. What a statement of a woman who's achieved tremendous career success, who's been everything that the feminist world says would make you happy. And she said, you know, it did not fulfill me. What I really wanted is just to be a wife and, you know, take care of a guy and have a husband who loves me and be partners together. Um, a profound statement from a woman who was not even a believer. Uh, does the system work? Okay, does this really work? Okay, God invented it, but do we really believe that God knew what he was talking about? Well, uh, there are some disclaimers. Okay, there are some disclaimers here. It works in Christ. It does not work in the flesh. 
Paul is very clear here that, that this is something that operates in Christ, in a Christian home where Christ is truly the head and the center. Um, if we do it in the flesh or apart from Christ, it doesn't work so well. And so the question comes for a lot of ladies, do women always have to submit? Uh, if their husband's a total loser, he's not taking responsibility, he's drunk, he's abusive, uh, if he's verbally or emotionally abusive, if he's manipulating, uh, if their life is being destroyed and turned inside out by this guy, is she just supposed to sit there and quietly take it and say, well, I'm being a submissive wife? Does she have to do that? Um, likewise, are men always held responsible for everything? Okay, if their wife, like Hosea's wife in the Old Testament, is bent on immorality, is determined to be living in immoral relationships, is basically a prostitute, that's what Hosea's wife was, and she's committed to immorality, it's, it's the husband responsible. I've seen this. I've seen situations where a guy was committed to his wife and his wife was very unfaithful. Do we blame the guy? Sometimes, you know, sadly we do. Is that right? Is he always responsible? If a woman is consumed with her feminism and refuses to follow and obey her husband, and uh, I've seen this too, eventually divorces her husband, gets a lesbian lover, you know, is it the guy's fault? You say, well, he was just a bad husband. And if he'd have been a really good, taken responsibility, you know, that wouldn't happen. Is that always the case. Uh, if a husband's done everything in his power to lead well, is it always his fault? Well, of course, in both of those cases, the answer is no. There are limits to these principles. And the limits are within the context of a Christian home where Christ is head. We live in a sinful world. And uh, the truth is, we don't, women, are not required or expected to submit to men who are blatantly sinful. Okay? Here's the principle. Your headship for all of this is always to Christ first. Your headship is to Christ first. If your husband's a jerk and a loser, you submit to Christ and let Christ dictate how you respond to that husband. And I believe there may be times when it's time to get out of Dodge. When you are no longer under the authority of that man because he has disqualified himself as a husband and as a leader, and his immoral, ungodly lifestyle... Uh, in a sense gets you off the hook. The requirement though is that you must not give up your headship to Christ in that. What I see a lot of women do is they, they won't submit to their husbands, they won't submit to Christ either. Our safeguard is our headship, is the headship of Christ. Um, when you are at risk of harm, when your children are at risk of harm, when your life is being turned inside out because of the sinful actions of another human being, you don't submit to that. When you're being asked to do what is immoral or sinful, you don't submit to that. Your, your headship, your submission is to Christ first. Uh, Paul puts it all in perspective when he says this. He says um, uh, in verse... I lost it. Um, verse 11. But in relationships among the Lord's people, and again, it's, it's, it's Christ-centered, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. Uh, in other words, it's balanced by interdependent relationships. Um, men, because you are head and leader, does not make you infallible. Okay? Because you're in charge doesn't mean you're always right. Okay? Take a dose of humility. This is a tough one for me because I am always right, so it's hard. 
and Denise will tell you, I'm always right. Right? See? She agrees. You know, for us guys, we have to be humble enough to recognize our headship doesn't make us infallible. We can be wrong. And oftentimes we are. A wise husband will listen to the counsel of his wife. When she says, honey, you're wrong. Okay? You're, just, you're about to do something really stupid. I thought I'd warn you. Okay? Wives, when your husband's about to do something stupid and he's wrong, be gracious about how you tell him he's wrong. Okay? It goes for if you say, honey, you know, you might want to reconsider this. You know, let's pray about this some more. Versus, why did you do that? That was stupid. Okay? That doesn't quite go as far. All right? uh, do it in a way that reflects his headship, his position of authority. Um, we need to have leadership that is really much more democratic than a dictatorship. And that's what Paul's saying here. So, you know, the bottom line is we need each other. We should live in interdependent relationships. Yeah, your head, you're not a dictator. It should be very democratic. There should be a lot of communication, a lot of give and take, a lot of listening. Okay? It should be very mutual in, in many respects. You are ultimately responsible. You're ultimately the head. But uh, don't, be, don't be an idiot. Don't be a jerk. You know? uh, lead in a style that is cooperate, cooperative. Um, last thing. Uh, and actually, there's, there's too much. I'm not going to get into this one yet because it's just too much. We're out of time. Uh, let me close with these points of application. Uh, you hear a message like this about our roles as men and women. And the tempting thing to do is to, is to say, man, I hope my husband's listening. Man, I hope my wife is listening. You know, I can think of about 50 things they could apply out of this message. You know, uh, Here's the deal. A relationship will change when you change. The temptation is to say, you know, if only my wife or my husband would apply these principles, our relationship would be so much better. Here's the, here's the reality. You can change your relationship when you apply the part that, that has to do with you. It's powerful. When you start walking and applying these principles in your own life, it's powerful and it... it a relationship is a tug-give-and-take thing. When you change your side of the relationship, when you change your part of the equation, it influences the whole equation, the whole part. Go home and before God say, God, what do I need to change in my part of the relationship if you're a husband and a wife? Uh, if you are in some other relationship role, it doesn't even matter if it's between men and women, whatever, in work and job, if you're struggling in that relationship where there's headship and either you're ahead or you're under and you feel friction or tension, ask yourself, how can I do my part better? What can I do to be an influence, positive influence by changing myself? It works. Um, secondly, I really do believe that as a church, as Christians, we need to be much more sensitive and conscientious and active about some of the cries of women. Uh, in Thailand, women are treated terribly. Around Asia, women are treated terribly. When I go teach any chance I get in this part of the world, uh, I try at least once to have at least one sermon about how Christians should not beat their wives. Because in most of these parts of the world, 
they think that's a good thing. You know, we need to be aware of ways that women are mistreated. We need to be a bold and active voice uh, standing up for the rights of women. Uh, we as a church should be recognized not as the enemy of feminists, but as allies who believe seriously that God is concerned about their cry for justice. Okay, that's something we need to take up and take more seriously. Let's pray. Father, um, we live in an age when there are so many cultural things that are in many ways contrary to what the Bible teaches. And there's been the temptation with so many Christians to water down and compromise truth and to waffle in the face of this cultural pressure. And Lord, I know this is uh, true, especially of these issues. And in so many areas of the church, uh, the the agenda of feminism is, uh, is having influence in ways that I believe are unbiblical and really go against your divine created order for the universe. An order that reflects your very nature and character. And so, Father, I pray that we would not shrink from what the Bible teaches as truth, but at the same time that we would be careful to understand it as uh, in balance and in a way that reflects grace, and in a way that upholds uh, the rights and dignity of people all around us, that elevates women, that honors them, that uh, it gives them the dignity that you have called them to as image bearers of the sovereign creator God of the universe. Lord, help us to apply these things in our life in clear and specific ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, step on it.